Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuc. Hi, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we want to continue our discussion of the Council of 50 Minutes. We spoke last week about some of the the teachings from the Prophet Joseph Smith that came out of that. And so what do we want to talk about this week, Garrett? I think I just want to go a little bit more in depth of, of how this council functioned as far as what what their plan was as it really affects Latter-day Saints going forward. So um, it's important to note that when they are looking, we talked about this last episode, but I'm just going to keep, uh, you know, like all people who don't have anything to say, I'm just going to keep saying the same thing over and over again. And it's like, oh, it seems like he knows what he's talking about. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But um, uh, they are looking for places that are deliberately outside of the United States. Now, that's probably, like I said, that's a surprise to many Latter-day Saints because they they assume, well, you know, God showed Joseph and vision, go to the Rocky Mountains, whatever, um, and that that's the reason why he's there. But the reality is that they want to get outside of the United States because the United States has been, is where all the tragedy has taken place. What have they learned about the United States? They've learned that whether they're in New York or Ohio, whether they're in Illinois or Missouri, that no matter how kind politicians might be in the initial reception of, of Mormons, because look, in in Illinois, Democrats in Illinois at first were incredibly gracious to Latter-day Saints because Illinois was a very, very divided state. To give you an idea of how divided it was, in 1840, the deciding factor between the presidential election, between the two candidates, the Whig candidate and the Democratic candidate, was 2,000 votes. So when ten to 15,000 very reliable Democratic voters say, hey, we're thinking of settling in your state, I know it's going to be hard to believe in our day and age that that a politician would say, that sounds great. And and they were willing to take those votes until those votes became less reliable. So what they found is that even in places where they're initially well-received, that that, that reception is going to wear pretty thin. And, and really, a lot of this just has to do with the fact that Latter-day Saints gather. There are other radical groups, other radical Protestants who have very radical ideas that are considered certainly outside of the mainstream of traditional Christianity. I'm not so sure I would argue that there are any of them that are that much more radical than Latter-day Saints, you know, but you could take, for instance, you know, shakers, they're pretty radical. We talked about them when we talked uh, earlier, Um, but in an earlier podcast, they're pretty radical. They, they don't believe Jesus was divine. (laughs) They, 
believe there's a difference between the Christ spirit and the mortality of Jesus and that that Christ spirit rested upon a, a woman named Anne Lee. And they believe that all sexual relations, whether you are married or not married, all of them are the, the, the most grievous of sins in the eyes of God and that there weren't supposed to be any, any procreation at all. That's pretty radical. But you probably don't hear a whole lot of, and then that's when the Shaker village was burned down <laughs> stories from American history. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons why. While Shakers gather together in communes, because they're sharing everything in common, you know, which is another reason why you might have a problem with them, um, they don't gather in communes that are very big. At best, it's a couple hundred people. And they refuse to vote. They, they don't participate in worldly government at all. So they don't vote. They, uh, you, you never have to worry about a shaker, you know, committing adultery with your wife. And, uh, and, and so they, they are not actually this, they, they are very much removed from the societies that they're in. They don't have the same kind of impact. Well, Latter-day Saints are not just gathering. They're gathering by the thousands and by the tens of thousands. It's one thing to have 200 people show up in your town of 2000. That's a 10% increase. That that's a massive change to your town. If you have a town of 2000 and 200 people show up, things are about to change. If you have a town of 2000 and 10,000 people show up, well, you don't have a town of 2000 anymore. Whatever you thought the town was is already gone. And so part of what makes Latter-day Saints so much more a bigger target for mob violence and for antagonism is the very fact that they gather together in order to have the strength, you know, to protect themselves, to build temples, to do God's work. That same aspect of them gathering together also makes them a much bigger target. It makes people feel more threatened by them. So, uh, they've already experienced this. And what they've experienced is that no matter how receptive a place might be when they first get there, as soon as it becomes politically expedient, which is almost always that those politicians are going to turn on them because anti-Mormonism actually crosses party lines. You'll notice this even in today's world. In today's world, the number of people who have uh, antagonistic thoughts towards Latter-day Saints. You find them on both the right and on the left. Now they might be for different reasons, but basically if someone hates you, I don't know that you care that much about the reasons, right? If someone hates you, then they hate you. And, and, and the reality is that Latter-day Saints back then, even more so everyone hated Mormons. Mormons were this anathema. They were, they were this weird phenomena that was outside of the mainstream. And by the way, everywhere they go, there's problems. And so that's the reason why that conclusion is, look, yeah, I guess we could move to like Michigan and then get driven out of Michigan. And we could maybe move to Tennessee and, and then get driven out of Tennessee. We could move to, you know, Vermont Man, then no one would know we were there for four or five years because no one else lives in Vermont. But they, 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 there, there was no place where they could permanently go to escape this. And that's the reason why, like we mentioned, that the plan is 
to get somewhere, whether outside of the United States, because the United States has already proven that they will not enforce local uh, state laws. State politicians won't. You know, local counties and governments won't because all of their citizens hate all these new Mormons who've moved in. State governments won't enforce the laws because those state governments know that it's a, you know, it's a death sentence for their own political party because Mormons are always the minority. And the federal government, as yet, is still clinging to the idea that, oh, we couldn't possibly intervene in, in what's a state matter. Unless, of course, it involves expelling tens of thousands of Native Americans from their lands. Then, then we'll intervene. We're more than willing to intervene if it's, if it's you know. So there's, there's some hypocrisy there that's also going on. They look at Oregon... Mexico and Texas. They also look very seriously at the Native American lands that were still as yet unorganized. They're actually going to send emissaries to go negotiate with uh, Native Americans in in what would be today part of Kansas. Um, and interestingly, those Native American groups report favorably on the idea of having Latter-day Saints come and stay with them. But the response from some of the members of the council is, yeah, the problem is that's great that they'll let us go stay there, but that can't be a permanent solution. That'll protect us right now when these mobs are burning houses down and threatening to kill people. But it can't be a permanent solution because it's still inside the borders of the U.S. of U.S. territory. So they think very hard about Texas. And when I, I mean, they really think about Texas. I, it's one of those thought games that you can play when you're a historian and when you have no friends that what would happen if Joseph Smith had not been murdered, had, had he survived at least for a little while longer, it is entirely possible that the, the Latter-day Saints might have moved to Texas. But the fact that Texas got annexed ended that discussion because now Texas was no longer an independent Republic. You know, I could be teaching at you know, BYU San Antonio, essentially. I mean, I don't know what it would be. You know, welcome to BYU Corpus Christi. Um, um, but, uh, the, the annexation of Texas ends discussion on the plans to go there at the same time, Oregon, which was that the whole Oregon territory, which is essentially all of Idaho, all of Washington, all of Oregon, and then almost all of Van uh, of uh, the province of Vancouver in the in, in British sorry British Columbia in uh, in Canada was all part of what was called Oregon Country. It's jointly occupied with the British and the Americans, and in fact, in 1845, the British nearly go to war with the United States over Oregon territory. James Polk runs on a platform that essentially says you are going to give us all of the Oregon territory or we are going to go to war. He ran on, you know, I know we like doing political campaigns. His campaign was 5440 or fight. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it sounds like he's giving, you know, the dimensions of his Levi's, but 5440 is, is well, maybe Willard Richards. That would be Taft's. Yeah, yeah, Howard Taft's Levi's, 5440. <laughs> Uh, it's a 54 inch waist and a 40 inseam, um, which reminds me of the anecdote that, uh, Taft, when he was the, on the Supreme court of the Philippines or territorial governor of the Philippines, I can't remember. Uh, at any rate, he telegraphed the white house when Theodore Roosevelt was in the white house saying that he'd ridden a horse to the top of one of the mountain peaks uh, there in the Philippines and, and Theodore Roosevelt's 
telegraph response was, how is horse? Stop. <laughs> um, Roosevelt, I, I think that's a little bit of cyberbullying, actually, from, from the president. At any rate, um, the... The, the 5440 comes from the upper parallel of the Oregon Territory. The highest point of what was considered Oregon Territory was the latitude marker 5440. And that's what they were saying. You're going to give us all of it. If you want to get all of it, we're going to war. Now, again, hard to believe that a politician would take a really, really, really hard but very popular line against a foreign power before they're elected. And then almost immediately when he's elected, he begins negotiations that's much softer rather than, uh, you know, that he was attacking the previous administrations for being even willing to consider giving part of Oregon to Britain. And then as soon as he became president, he negotiated a line that basically cut it in half. Um, but what did that mean? That meant that Oregon territory, which was once, it was once attractive. Look, it was attractive for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, I don't know if you've ever been to the Northwest, it, it's a lot easier to grow crops because it rains there. Um, and you know, there's an ocean and it's not, it's not a desert and you know, really there's just a lot of reasons why it's better than Utah. But, um, uh, um, and there's only 5,000 whites, you know, either British or American settlers living in all of Oregon territory, which, which was all those States I rattled off in, in 1845. So again, you know, the biggest settlements, a couple hundred people anywhere the Latter-day Saints go in Oregon country, they are dwarfing the pot. I mean, anywhere the Latter-day Saints go in Oregon country, they are tripling the entire population of Oregon country. So there's a lot less risk of people grabbing pitchforks and coming to attack you when there's four of them and there's 4,000 of you. They might still grab their pitchforks, but good luck. You know, demogra- you know dem- demographics is destiny in that regard, right? So, but once it becomes part of U.S. territory with this negotiated settlement, well, that, it stops being an option. Because what Brigham and the council all see is the trend is settlement to the West. So yeah, there might be only 5,000 people there, but will there be 5,000 people there 30 years from now or 40 years or 50 years though. If, if we go anywhere that settlement will outpace Latter-day Saint growth, we're going to have the same problem that we had before. We'll have an antagonistic state government and a federal government that won't help us at all. Well, that leaves essentially Mexico. Mexico really becomes one of the last places. And again, Mexico is incredibly attractive. It's attractive for, uh, I know if you see a map of Mexico, maybe I'll put one of these up on the on the Instagram, but I know if you see a map of Mexico in, in 1845, it looks gigantic. I mean, it is everything <clears throat> west of present-day Texas. So all of New Mexico and, and uh, Arizona, California, the state of California today, Utah, Nevada, most of Colorado, I mean, just it, it, it is all up there, part of Wyoming. Well, in that entire area outside of New Mexico, New Mexico does have a substantial Mexican population. It's almost entirely 
uh, Native Americans, uh, uh, various uh, Native American groups that have um, intermarried with with uh, Spanish and then Mexican settlers. Um, but there are tens of thousands of settlers in New Mexico. But outside of New Mexico, there's almost nobody. The very few settlements that exist in Mexican California, which it back then included everything that wasn't New Mexico, essentially, the largest one of them is Los Angeles, and it is 1,200 people. 1,200 people. There are more men in the Nauvoo Legion than there are people living in Los Angeles. It kind of gives you an idea anywhere they go. And it's tough to wrap our heads around this because when we think of California, all we can think is, I would love to live there, but there's too many people who live there. And so it would cost too much money. If we have any listeners in California, they're like, yes, stay where you're at. You know what I mean? Like California is beautiful. I mean, who wouldn't want to be at BYU San Diego? I mean, that, that sounds incredible, but it's, it's incredibly expensive to live there. And, you know, and so, um, but back then almost no one is living in what is today, uh, California, the state, there's only 7,000, 7,000 whites living in the entirety of Mexican California. So that's the entirety of California, Nevada, Utah, half of Colorado, part of Wyoming, uh, Arizona in all of that area fewer than 7,000, about 500 Americans and about 6,500 Mexicans. And almost all of those Mexicans are living on very scattered seaports on what is today present day California, Los Angeles. Um, uh, you have, uh, you know, obviously some settlements up in the San Francisco Bay area. You have, um, uh, settlements along the coast, but that's it. So again, wherever the Latter-day Saints go, wherever they go, they aren't just going to compete with the population of San Diego or Los Angeles. They are going to dwarf it. You're going to go from 1,000 people in a place to 21,000 people in that place overnight. And of course, Latter-day Saints aren't just coming one time. They unlike the Shakers, do believe in procreation, but they also believe in missionary work. And there are thousands of people joining the church. And so part of the problem for this, the Latter-day Saint demographics for the people who are opposed to them becoming their neighbors is that it's not like 15,000 Mormons just moved to California. It's 15,000 Mormons moved to California right now. And another 2,000 come next year. And another 3,000 the year after that. And another 4,000 after that. I mean, it's it's this, almost this wave of migration. So California, you know, again, Mexico on a map looks like they dominate all of this Western United States. And they nominally claim it. The Native Americans who live in those places would not recognize Mexican, you know, they were like, what do you mean the Mexican president is, you know, our boss? I mean, there in what what today is Utah, there aren't any permanent Mexican settlements. The only settlements at all in in what is today Utah in 1845 are temporary fur trading stations that are set up where trappers like trade hides and things like that. There's no towns. There's no cities. There's no permanent settlements at all that aren't 
American Indian settlements. Uh, and, and so Latter-day Saints are, are looking for a place to go where there isn't an existing population. Boy, Utah really, I mean, it's not called Utah at the time, but Mexican California really looks attractive. And that's, that's where they really start to focus in after their, after Texas is annexed, after Oregon territory is settled, the plan really is to leave the United States. And they're thinking, well, we'll move to Mexico, then we'll go negotiate with some of the Mexican representatives. We'll say, hey, we're here. We'd like to stay here, you know, and 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 that's that seems to be the plan. Well, a lot of this gets accelerated um, when... It gets accelerated when uh, uh, Joseph Smith is murdered. Things are put on hold for a minute because Joseph Smith's murder throws things into some disarray. But in the aftermath of Joseph Smith's murder, all of the things that they already kind of thought about the federal government's unwillingness to help them and the murderous nature of the citizens of the United States towards the Mormons, all of those things got very much uh, uh, inflated. Because how many people were executed for the murder of Joseph and Hiram Smith, right? How many people were tried and put in jail for 30 years for burning Mormon houses down or for shooting and killing Edmund Durfee for being a Mormon? Well, nobody is. So they, they not only have this fear that government isn't going to protect them, Joseph and Hiram's murder and the, the violence that comes in the aftermath of that is just a perfect demonstration you can't get justice here. Justice here doesn't exist. And we get some of that commentary in the Council of 50 Minutes. So here's part of what Brigham Young has to say. He says, The nation is severed for us from them in every respect. They've made us a distinct nation as much as the Lamanites. It is my prayer that we may soon find a place where we can have a home and live in peace according to the law of God. I hope to find a place where no self-righteous neighbors can say that we're obnoxious to them. You can see the idea is we need to go somewhere that people aren't. Um, He'll go on uh, to say, the Gentiles have rejected the gospel. They killed the prophets and those who have not taken an active part in the murder all rejoice in it. They say amen to it. He's not wrong. There are newspapers in the country that will print congratulatory remarks to the people who kill Joseph and Hiram Smith. Now, there are also people that are horrified that it's who placed in the United States. Interestingly, you know, the one, the one, I mean, there's a couple of redeeming qualities of Eber Howe. One, his name's Eber, so you got to give him something, right? If you're named Eber, you got to give him something, right? But one is the guy is a, he's very active, trying to help runaway slaves on the Underground Railroad. And, and it just kind of presents this, this, this difficult situation you have in history all the time where what your Twitterverse wants to believe is that everyone is always either the most virtuous person who's ever lived or move to the side, Satan, we have a new one. And there's nothing in between. If someone does any negative act, they can't possibly have any redeeming quality at all. Now, that's how we judge other people. It's not how we want people to judge us. Whenever we're having people judge us and they bring up some horrible thing, well, remember when you 
told me that you you know you were gonna do this, this and so oh well i mean yeah that was i was really mad that day i mean i mean come on that's not who i am whenever we're having people judge us we want to we want all kinds of excuses when we're judging other people there's no room for excuse nope this is who they are well eber Howe is someone who is directly linked to anti-mormon bigotry He's funding it. He's supporting it. He is driving mobs that are attacking Latter-day Saints. And he's saving enslaved men and women by getting them to Canada. Right? I mean, how do you reconcile that? Well, I mean, I think that people are a lot more complex than we give them. We want to give them credit for. It's easy when the only crayon colors in your Crayola box are black and white. But it's also not very reflective of the actual colors in the real world in the real world there's all kinds of different shades and there are people who do great things and then terrible things there are people who do almost nothing good and then once in a while did something great and there are people who are nothing but terrible evil people who do nothing but evil kind of like thomas ford again that's me overstating it because i don't like thomas ford I mean, it's not actually very good teaching technique to say, hey, we shouldn't paint with a broad brush. Let me get out a spray paint uh, gun uh, when it comes to Thomas Ford. But that's, you knew what I was when you picked me up. Um, So, so there's this, there, 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 there is um, another redeeming aspect to Eber Howe, and that is when the violence happens in Missouri and they're murdering people in places like Hans Mill and far West, even Eber Howe is like, what are you guys doing? I mean, you know, he hates the Mormons, think the Mormons are terrible, wants every legal means taken against the Mormons. But even he's like, well, you can't, you can just kill them. But I mean, that's the, the end result of some of that rhetoric, I guess. At any rate, uh, Brigham Young goes on to say that they all say amen to the killing of Joseph and Hiram. And that is saying that they are willing that the blood of the prophets should be shed. The Gentiles have rejected the gospel. And where should we go to preach? We can't go anywhere but to the house of Israel. He's meaning to the American Indians that we're going to go preach to them because they're the house of Israel. We can't get salvation without it. We can't get salvation anywhere else. And then in the council, they make the determination that they're going to write letters to every governor in the United States, asking all of them, will you let the Latter-day Saints come and get refuge in your state? Now, while they're doing this, and this obviously takes a great deal of time to write these you know, 30 plus letters and, and put them out. Um, someone you know, says, boy, this seems like, you know, they're not really going to respond to this, right? And Brigham Young is pretty adamant about it. It's like, no. In the next life, I'm not quoting him directly, I'm paraphrasing. I don't want them to be able to claim that they would have helped us if we would have asked. I want them on record. I want them to have the opportunity to try to help us so that they can't later say, oh, no, we, we would have. We would have let them in if we're asking them all so that when we're driven out of the country, essentially, we really were. Now, he does actually have the governor of Arkansas does write him back. Uh, Arkansas Governor Drew. Drew, though, is in a pretty bad place politically. He was appointed to be governor by the legislature because I think the previous governor had stepped down or died. I can't remember. But then after he was appointed in the 
the next election, the party that was in power that appointed him was swept out of power. So he was an appointed governor with a minority party behind him. Or in other words, the most powerless governor in the world, right? Um, And he said, I would be willing to let your people come to Arkansas and have refugee. I just don't think I could get the legislature to pass the bill, but I feel bad for the things that, I mean, again, I guess that's, you know, he's not offering anything but a little bit of, you know, pat on the head condolences, but that's more than they got from other people. So it still gives me a soft spot for him, you know? So is he the only one that responded or others responded? There's a couple others that respond saying, no, there's no possible way, but that's it. Most don't respond. And none of them respond, hey, you can come here. So that is on record. And then he's going, uh, Brigham Young says, I know that they will do nothing for us. We need to get out of the jurisdiction of the United States. That's what he says. It's very direct. It's very clear. We need to get out of the direct, the jurisdiction of the United States. In fact, Brigham is going to really put the border of the United States territory as the goal of the Latter-day Saints. In one of these discussions in March of 1845, He's going to say, if we can get 100 miles beyond the jurisdiction of the United States, we are safe. And that's all we ask. So it's, it's very different than what you often think of. I mean, I think many Americans think that, you know, how relieved settlers must have been when, you know, U.S. sovereignty caught up with them. You know, if you were out, you know, roughing it in the North Dakotan wilderness and suddenly that was made a... a, a a territory of the United States and there was more government. Oh, how relieving it is that, you know, there's going to be more infrastructure and there's going to be, you know, more law and order and all that stuff. For the Latter-day Saints, it's really kind of the other way around. We aren't going to feel safe until the United States can't do anything to us. So how do saints then at this time, how do they kind of come to terms with the constitution and, and organization of the United States as being something inspired by God with, we've got to get out of here. Yeah. I, I think they come to terms with it, uh, in, by saying that it's actually even a greater condemnation of the nation. It is God inspired the constitution and you guys are all so evil that you know, God is, is going to judge you for this. I mean, they, they're reading the book of Mormon and look, it's not that it's not that Nephi was an inspired progenitor of the Nephites. It's that the ones that were trying to kill Samuel weren't quite as inspired by Nephi as Nephi would have wanted them to be right. So the problem isn't that this was started by God. They, they readily acknowledge that. Of course, it's actually the reason why they're so disgusted with the United States government because they believe that God had a hand in the founding of the country. And this is what it's come to. What it's come to is you driving us out and threatening, threatening to kill us. So it actually causes, it it makes them more bitter in the sense that they expect a lot more from the United States government. Um, Brigham's going to explain that they're going to Mexican California and he's going to say, we want to get between some of those mountains where we can fortify ourselves and erect the standard of liberty on one of the highest mountains that we can find. So they see getting into Mexican California, which is where Utah is part of that Mexican California. And that way they are defensible because of the mountains. So they're actually thinking of where they're going in terms of, and what if an army were to come after us? Could we defend ourselves? 
that kind of goes a little bit to the idea of where they're at. This is not simply, hey, we need to find a better place to stay. This one's not working out so well. This is a fleeing. This is a feeling that if they stay anywhere inside U.S. sovereign territory, that they are potentially going to be killed or at the very least uh, be open to the the brutality that they had faced before. Um, one of uh, uh, one of the people who was most adamant about the fact that he'd lost his patience with the United States is actually John Taylor. Now let's give John Taylor a little bit of a pass. He is in this meeting here in 1845 and has a body that's completely scarified and, and torn up and, you know, has a cane now and, and has a bullet in the back of his knee from Carthage that isn't ever removed. John Taylor is to the point where he's he's beyond platitudes and people saying, oh, you know, you should have your rights protected. Oh, I feel so bad that they aren't protecting your rights. Oh, of course, I couldn't possibly help you, but I feel really bad that you don't have your rights being protected. John Taylor is mad and he's going to say, in regard to the situation of the world as it now exists, I don't care a damn because they are as corrupt as the devil. We have no benefit from the laws of the land. And the only reason they don't cut our throats is they dare not. Well, he's, so he's speaking pretty harshly in this meeting. And one of the members in the meeting is like, hey, we, get, we don't want to speak too much. I mean, what if, what if people in the government hear how angry we are? They might persecute us more. And John Taylor is like, just scoffs, like, persecute us more? They just, they, what? They just murdered Joseph and Hiram. They're burning our houses down. They refuse. What? What else do you think they're going to do? In fact, he says, they can't lie about us or persecute us any worse than they already have. And so he, you know, he sees leaving the United States as that solution. We know that we have, this is him again. We have no, we know that we have no more justice here than we could get at the gates of hell. And the only thing that we've got to do is to take care of ourselves. We have been excluded from all of our rights as other citizens, and we have a right to make a law for ourselves and to put them in force. I go in for a company being sent out to find a place where we can establish the kingdom and erect the standard and dwell in peace and have our own laws. See, you can see what his mindset is. His mindset is this isn't fixable. And, you know, the bullet in my leg speaking to me is telling me it's not fixable. I, I know firsthand it's not fixable. Let's just get out. Um, and of course, the, this is difficult because almost all of them are native-born Americans. John Taylor isn't, so maybe that makes it easier for him. But but most of the Latter-day Saints, certainly most of the Latter-day Saint leadership, are you know born in America. Um, and, and many of the others have been in America for quite some time, even with the, the influx of immigration. But they've come to this very painful decision that Joseph had come to, that they're going to need to leave the United States. It's not just the leaders of the church. and That's one of the points that I want to make here. It's Latter-day Saints themselves who see this as, as a, a situation that is just so, the, the, the government is so culpable in allowing the persecution to continue the way that it is, that in 1845, so July of 1845, there are no 4th of July celebrations in, in Nauvoo. Well, 
That's not normal for the Latter-day Saints. Uh, in fact, in 1841, they have this massive uh, 4th of July celebration. And, and celebrating the 4th of July was a very common thing. They didn't celebrate it in 44 because it was right. It was you know, just days. They were bringing Joseph's body home from Carthage. I mean, it was immediately after the martyrdom. And so everyone's in mourning. But 1845, you're at Europe, a year removed from Joseph's murder. And instead of celebrating the 4th of July, the Latter-day Saints deliberately protested. They, they deliberately refused to celebrate. And, and you start to see what an impossible position hated minority groups are in in this regard. We tried to be a part of the larger majority culture, right? We're from Americans, rah-rah America, Constitution, celebrate the 4th of July, and you treat us like we're separate and you don't give us the benefit of the laws and you allow people to kill us and you allow people to, 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 to make fun of us and to attack us. And then, so they don't celebrate the 4th of July in 1845 as a way of saying, we're not going to celebrate the independence and the freedom that we don't have. Well, what's the response from the newspaper editors in the neighborhood? Well, we knew Mormons weren't very good. Uh, Americans. I mean, you can tell they're not. I mean, they wouldn't even celebrate the Fourth of July. So you can see there's there's really no way to win. If we try to go along to get along, well, you, then you just keep treating us badly. If we if we speak out in a way that is very noticeable and forceful, well, then you take the fact that we're speaking out as proof that we're bad citizens. So what can you do? Again, back to the solution of I guess we'll just leave. Because no matter what we do, it's not going to be safe for us here. So Irene Haskell is a woman. She's she's a 19-year-old uh, woman living in Nauvoo. And she's married. Uh, you know, marrying age is much lower uh, in the average uh, marrying age for women uh, and, and men in the mid-19th century. It's much lower. So it's not, it's not entirely unheard of. In fact, the average is around 19. But she's married, living with her husband in Nauvoo. Her parents are living in Massachusetts. And she's going to write a letter back to them. Uh, shortly after the 4th of July. And she's going to say, the 4th of July has just passed here. I suppose there, talking about Massachusetts, there were balls and tea parties and all the like out in the East. But here there was nothing of the kind. The Mormons think the liberty and independence of the United States has been too long trampled on to be celebrated. So she's very cognizant of what is going on. We're not celebrating because we don't have anything to celebrate because the laws that are supposed to protect us in our freedom of religion aren't protecting us. And in fact, now the government's actually being used against us, but she's, she's not alone. Um, as mob violence increases, uh, women like Zina, uh, Huntington Jacobs, she, uh, uh, she is going to say, uh, I, when I cast my eyes about what do I behold? This is in her journal. Every brother armed with a gun upon his shoulder to protect his family and the other brethren from violence of the furious mob who are now out burning all that falls into their way all round about the country. Ah, liberty, thou art fled when the wicked rule people mourn. There she's quoting from one of Joseph Smith's revelations. And it, this is recognized by even other people. As, as, as 1845 wears on, and anti-Mormon violence becomes more express. And I mean, you have these organized 
uh, groups of men going from Mormon settlement to Mormon settlement and driving the inhabitants out and setting fire to all of their haystacks, setting fire to their grain fields, setting fire to their houses and their barns. And in, in, in some case, in one case with Edmund Durfee in September, killing him, shooting and killing him and then burning all this stuff down. That's not a way to demonstrate that the government system is, is helping, right? It's, it's, it's a further demonstration of how terrible things are. And, and it's a St. Louis newspaper uh, man who, witnessing these events, writes, uh, uh, you know, you can tell he's surprised at the level of violence and animosity towards the Mormons. And he's from Missouri. So, I mean, like, I don't even know. What, 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 I don't know what your baseline is, but he is shocked at the level. He's probably thinking, I honestly thought no one could hate Mormons like we do. But apparently there's, you know, there's something enough to go around. He says that the Mormons are deter the anti-Mormons are determined to drive the Mormons out of the county. They are out burning the Mormon houses, barns, haystacks, etc. In this war of extermination, they include not only Mormons, but all who are suspected of favoring the Mormon cause or harboring Mormons about them. This is not a just a an I mean a type of ethnic cleansing, which is absolutely what it is. I mean. If you go to a settlement and you tell all of the inhabitants who you don't know at all, because you are Mormons, you can either leave or we'll kill you. And then you burn down all their houses. That's, that's what you would call ethnic cleansing today. You're, you're driving a certain type of people, a certain ethnic or religious group out of an area where they legitimately live. Why? Because they're that group. It's not an individual. It's not like, ah, oh, Bill has been fighting with me over water rights for years. We really should have a water rights podcast. That'll, I think that's year four. Year four, we're going to do water rights um, and and rice tariffs. Water rights. Oh my gosh. I can't wait for well, year I, four. I don't want you to do rice tariffs until you have the PhD in hand. That's, <laughs> even ABD, I'm worried. I'm worried Fair. that the it's rabbit fun. hole you'll go down will make Alice in Wonderland, you know, blush. I will say, I will say, just just quickly on okay, rice tariffs. Yeah, yeah we're, here so, we go. Well, no, buckle just, up. Just as just as a quick aside, only so, Rachel's mom's so, listening. Now. <laughs> well, so when we when back back in the before time when we had uh, scouting, uh, I was a priest corps advisor for it was, many. It a was year. a dark and lonely time. <laughs> I was so much camping. I was a priest corps advisor for many a year, and uh, and I became the merit badge counselor for thirty five different merit badges. So that because by the time they were a priest, I mean they had you know usually it's like they had months before the, whether to get their eagle or not, and I taught all of the citizenship merit badges using rice tariffs in every example. So did you alter the merit badge where it's just a bowl of rice? That would, <laughs> well, so as boring as as I as I was even saying that as boring as that explanation was of how much I love rice tariffs, Jap Japanese rice tariffs specifically, but rice tariffs in general, you're a fan oh, I love of, me yeah. a good rice yeah, yeah, tariff, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Japanese rice tariffs are the creme in de la creme. Okay. Anyway, um, as, anyway, the, what everything we're going to need to cut this out. This was the most boring thing I've yeah, ever. We seen. We don't have any production abilities, so we're not going to be able to cut it out. People are going to hear this and be like, "I wonder why they don't have a producer." Because this is we're sponsored. This is held together with spit and gum, uh, and mostly spit. We can't even afford gum. Um, it, it, the 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 reality of the situation for the Latter Day Saints is that. 
they they are increasingly feeling isolated because they're not just having this. You know, look, newspaper people reporting. Yeah, they want to exterminate the more look. The Mormons have heard the word exterminate before. It didn't end well, right? And and I think that's one of the things we don't we don't recognize enough is that imagine the amount of psycho the shared psychological trauma that Latter Saints have from the the incredible violence that took place in Missouri. All of the horrific assaults and house burnings and, and you know, if you're Amanda Smith, the murder of your husband and your son, that, that, and then, you know, being expelled in the middle of winter and this horrific trek across Missouri to Illinois, that just happened. And in your, I mean, just a few years ago. And so when someone says, yeah, we're going to exterminate the Mormons, that's not an idol or a casual threat because that's that you've experienced that before. And so um, one of the reasons why these threats seem to have even more staying power is because at the time Brigham Young has a representative in DC and his job is to kind of keep the eyes and ears of what's going on in the government. Try to, I mean, he's trying to lobby Congress to intervene. Of course, he's not going to intervene. Try to lobby the president. Of course, the president's not going to intervene. But his name's Samuel Brannan. Sam Brannan starts sending Brigham Young not just information that, hey, the president's not going to help. He actually starts sending him information that is far, far more uh, uh, just terrifying. That the government's not going to help is a problem, but they've never been willing to help. But suddenly Sam Brannan starts sending Brigham Young information that in fact the government is planning to intervene in the problems with the Latter-day Saints. The problem is he's planning, the government's planning to intervene to either capture the Mormon leadership and arrest them to prevent them from going to another nation and, you know, forcing them as to an armed settlement somewhere else, or according to some sources, obliterate them from the face of the earth. So you go from thinking our federal government is incredibly inept and weak and feckless to thinking now they aren't just watching our persecutors. They are our persecutors. Sam Brannan's letter to Brigham Young says that the secretary of war, William Marcy and other members of the cabinet were laying plans to prevent the Mormons from moving West. He said, he's, this is what Brannon is saying. Secretary Marcy said, so this is some hearsay, but again, in the environment of Brigham Young receiving this letter from his man in Washington, what are you going to, to believe? They say it will not do to let the Mormons go to California or to Oregon. Neither will let them do to tarry in the states that they must be obliterated from the face of the earth. That's what Brigham Young is receiving in uh, the latter months of 1845. So, so now you have a whole new problem. We have the we have the problem we're dealing with on the ground with this anti-Mormon violence that is just running rampant, and then we have the problem that's 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 going on nationally now. Now you're telling me the federal government is going to side with the mobbers. It was bad enough when they weren't doing anything. Now they are going to do something, and what they're going to do is something even worse. Um, Brigham Young wrote in his journal that 
quote, the government intended to intercept our movements by placing strong forces in the way to take away from us all firearms on the grounds that we were going to another nation. So Brigham Young, he, he thinks that's the case. One of the people that um, I want to spend a little bit of time on here uh, as it relates to this, and maybe this will be the last story we'll tell about the, the Council of Fifty for this one, is, is Oren Porter Rockwell. Now, uh, Porter Rockwell, I would guess, is one of the most well-known Latter-day Saints in Latter-day Saint history. So my dad is a faithful member of the church. Has but he's not listening to this podcast. Well, he's, he, no, my God. He's no Rachel's mom. I'll no, give it. Yeah. Who is? Yeah, no one's Rachel's mom. And and on top of that, like, Rachel's mom knows how to download the podcast. That's like, what I'm We've saying. still got my mom that's what still she's, asking me, how do I listen to this? That's what, that's what she has I, over her How many links can I send this woman? But so my my dad, he loves two people in the history of the church. He loves Orrin Porter Rockwell. And Jay Golden Kimball. That is the one. This says a lot about Richard's dad. Wait, wait. Well, so, I mean, we grew up rural Idaho. Those are his two favorite people. And, and, and if my dad was listening, he would just be casually, it would be on, but then he hears Porter Rockwell and he, he's, he's like, okay. Oh, I'm about to hear some cool stories. There's been a lot written about Porter Rockwell. And look, just about everything that's written about Porter Rockwell is in some way a, a type of, of first, I mean, it's type of second or third or fourth or fifth or tenth. Well, I mean, he, he's, he's our Paul Bunyan. You yeah, know exactly. I mean? Like, and then came Porter. <laughs> I mean, just it's it's it, it, he he's a larger than life figure. I mean, in part, some of the things I think it's because we're thinking the wrong way about the past. I and mean, we'd be like, yeah, I mean, like Porter Rockwell would drink. Like, yes, yeah, so did every other Mormon in 1840s. <laughs> I mean, no, he would like smoke and drink, and and he had long hair. Have you seen any early pictures of Brigham Young? He had long hair. I mean, he didn't have Porter Rockwell hair, but. Um, at any rate, um, there's a lot about him and it's because he's this kind of brash person that's that, and kind of that's, that's an understanding, <laughs> but also that he's also this, this desperate defender of Joseph Smith. You know, we kind of, we lionize him and, and we could spend probably seven or eight podcasts <laughs> going through the entirety of, of the stories about him and being like, yeah, that one's not very accurate. That one actually did happen. That one is made up entirely. I mean, we would, we would kind of be going through the gamut. So I'm not going to do that because we we don't have a lot of time here. But one of the cool things that we get out of the Council of 15 Minutes is we get a real-time, unfiltered statement from Porter Rockwell because he's one of the members of the, of the Council of 15. Of course he is. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're planning... An armed invasion of another country. <laughs> Who do you want in that? I mean, I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I. It, yeah, that's yeah. Funny. I mean, come on. It'd be like trying to. Hiram was was. I want to plan a Disney and... blockbuster today, but not have the Rock in it. Come on. I mean, what are you gonna do? You know. Uh, anyway, um, so so Rockwell, you know, he he actually is recorded speaking in this meeting, and so William Clayton is recording these minutes while these people are speaking. And so you get real-time Porter Rockwell. What, it, what he's saying, not filtered through someone 20 years later saying like, I remember when Porter Rockwell pulled his gun on that. Yeah. No, this is Porter Rockwell actually speaking. When I say that, why does that matter? Well, because Porter Rockwell is apparently illiterate. Uh, and, and I know we say, well, Joseph was illiterate. No, Joseph could read and write poorly in, 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 you know, in 1820. Porter Rockwell apparently can't do that. We have documents that he 
quote unquote signs and it's like a cartoon it's like legitimately with an x like so you know sign the x on the dot he signs an x and someone underneath will let this x in behalf of porter rockwell i mean so he he can't read uh or if he can he can't do it very well and he certainly can't write he can't sign his own name that's 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 like i think that's a low bar to clear right so that means that for all the books that are written about him, and there'll always be books written about him because they make all kinds of money because everyone wants to read about him because they're all Richard's dad. And, <laughs> and, 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 and it, I think actually I'm going to, uh, you know what? Let's write a book. Let's write a book about oh, Porter Rockwell. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's crazy. Why would we want to write a book that people would want to buy yeah. so that you could make well, money? Well, as a historian, my main goal is to both write and speak in a way that no one wants to listen to or couldn't care less about. That's what we were taught in graduate <laughs> this, school. Yeah, this is the difference between a business PhD and a history one. Right? Yeah, yeah. Tell us more about rice tariffs. Anyway, <laughs> um, so Rockwell's recorded saying something in this in – this, uh, uh, Speech, they're talking about how much persecution there is. And Porter Rockwell says, I say yes to everything that's good and right. I was a friend to Joseph Smith while he lived. I am still his friend. He can't avenge his wrongs himself, but I mean to avenge them for him. Wow. Wow. I'm not sure what's going on. <laughs> but Porter Rockwell appears to be saying, I... Am going to get vengeance on the people who killed Joseph Smith. I don't know if this is anyway. Uh, so I appreciate the hustle. First of all, that he, I mean, he just loves Joseph so desperately. Um, and Joseph, you know, Porter Rockwell was pretty rough around the edges between the, the, you know, the, 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 the different aspects of his character. I'm sure he swore a lot more than Jay Golden Kimball, but that's the reason why, you know, Joseph has that wonderful quote. What Joseph loves about people is, is who they are. Of course, they need to try to act better and change their actions. But what Joseph loves is people who value people. And so that's the reason why Joseph has that great quote. I love a man more that can swear a, a stream as long as my arm than that long, cold-faced hypocrite. Right? It's really easy for people to talk about how great they are and put forward this face that, oh, yes, I'm wonderfully pious. But what are they actually doing to help other people? Right? Is the extent of their helping other people whatever they just posted on their Instagram? Or, or are they someone, yeah, who might swear a little bit, but also would do anything to help anyone? And, and that's certainly how Joseph, I think Joseph loves Porter Rockwell because of that. So after threatening uh, <laughs> vengeance uh, against uh, Joseph's enemies, um, we'll move to what he said next. He said, after, you know, I mean to avenge him if I can. And if I get into trouble, yes, you're, <laughs> I don't know what your plan for vengeance is, but you're obviously going to get into trouble. A, you're a Mormon, and B, you're planning vengeance against people. I mean to avenge him for him. And if I get into trouble, I want you to help me if you can. And this is actually how it's written in the record. If you can without criminating yourselves, not, <laughs> not incriminating yourselves, criminating. So I'm assuming that that's how he said it. If you could help me without criminating yourself, help me. But if not, let me go, he says. <laughs> 
And then he gives this, I almost feel like this should be on Porter Rockwell's, this should be his epitaph. It should be on his headstone. Um, And so it's one of these great things we have. He says, I love my friends and I hate my enemies. I can't love them if I would. Uh, If I would is a 19th century way of saying, even if I wanted to. Even if I wanted to love my enemies, I couldn't. So first of all, he's saying he doesn't (laughs) want to love them. And second of all, that he lacks the capacity to do it. But but it's an interesting thing. great quote. I I love my friends and I hate my enemies. Now, I know that's not what Jesus wanted us to do. And and so I'm not endorsing that. I, I, I mean, we have to find a way to love those that, 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 that despitefully use us. At the same time, I think it's a reflection of, of the fact that for Porter Rockwell, who had been friends with Joe, Porter Rockwell is one of the first people baptized into the church. There's almost nobody who makes it out of early New York who's baptized in the first months of the church and makes it all the way to Salt Lake. Almost nobody. A bunch of apostatized in Kirtland, a bunch more apostatized in Missouri, and the very few that are still left in the church in Nauvoo, most of them apostatized after Joseph Smith is murdered. But you know who's on his way to Salt Lake? Porter Rockwell, where he'll go and be a sheriff and shoot other people. But um, he, he, uh, he, is, he is someone who, he, he is devoted to the cause from the very beginning. And he was devoted to Joseph Smith from the very beginning. So this is going to be coming out on Joseph Smith's birthday and is going to be coming out obviously a couple of days before Christmas. And I, and I know I know that we want to move on to um, Mexican California territory. We're, they, we're going. We're yeah. going. We're getting yeah, out of here. In fact, John Taylor in one of the meetings, he wrote a song about where they were going called The Upper California. Oh, the Upper California, that's the place for me. It lies between the mountains and the deep blue sea. <laughs> John Taylor um, sang a lot. He was apparently a, had a beautiful singing voice. Well, it, yeah. there's also very interesting stories with Samuel Brennan and, and being and coming yeah, out all to kinds of things that we want my mom to download. <laughs> <laughs> well, so those those are all interesting stories, and I know we're all going to get to that as part of kind of part seven. This is what you call a tease. Yeah. Well, I mean that's a it's a loose term for what we're doing yeah, here. Mainly, this is called not having a plan. <laughs> Sporadically throwing various bits and pieces at a, a wall, and then calling so, that a tease. Yeah, yeah, and saying like, "What do you think of that? Do you think that's good?" Yeah, that's a wrap. As Richard goes off to the bank to cash his no check and to pay his gas money to get down here to do this recording in the first place. So, all that said, as this is, uh, I mean, as this is the the Christmas episode, yeah, uh, about Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas! As the Mormons are being driven from yeah. yet another place. I thought nothing. Nothing says Christmas like everyone hates you, and we're trying to obliterate you from the face of the earth again. Yeah, please pass the fruitcake again. Um, but that said, there is a great uh, Porter Rockwell story relating to a Christmas. Christmas. Story. Well, so a Christmas story. The yeah, Porter yeah, Rockwell. The, <laughs> it's a children's book, but it also punches you in the face when you open it up. Um, so first of all, I, I get asked all the time, you know, like, well, what was like Christmas like for Joe? Like, what kind of gifts did Joseph get his kids? And so it's important to understand that that Christmas is a very different thing in the 19th century than it is today. Just like we talked about once before about birthdays. I mean, Hallmark hadn't been invented yet, right? So, so uh, birthdays were very different. People recognized it was their birthday if they knew what day it was. But with with uh, Christmas, they celebrated it. But the whole 
gift-giving presents for kids, Santa Claus kind of thing, uh, I don't know what kind of mixed company we're listening to, that originated much later. Santa Claus didn't start visiting children in America until more like the 1870s and 80s. And that was really, uh, there were some pockets, but then it becomes more widespread during that time period. In fact, there's a great part of Wilford Woodruff's journal. I Remember what I said about just throwing things and so <laughs> At this point, now your dad and Becky's dad, Richard's wife, Becky, also not listening. Uh, but Wilford Woodruff writes in his in his journal about, uh, he writes in his journal, Santa Claus called upon me and and, and uh, took like, it's like $24 for the children's presents or something like that. He's just obviously tongue in cheek writing this in his journal that... Uh, uh, that he, uh, Christmas is going to cost him, uh, but that's but that's later. That's in the that's like in the eighteen seventies that he's writing that or eighteen late eighteen sixties. So I think uh, you know for those who've watched you know various iterations of a Christmas Carol, that does give a little bit better iteration of what's going on. I mean, when we make it Mickey's Christmas Carol, you know you got you know Scrooge bringing over a bunch of presents, you know because. That's what Christmas is to us. And that's what, when we think about, oh, a kid's alone on Christmas. We're thinking about getting them gifts. But more so, it was a time of, of getting together to have parties. It was a, it, You got together. You know, the bells were rung. People did sing carols, um, yeah, beautiful carols. In fact, before I tell this Porter Rockwell story, I'm going to tell another story. On the 25th of December, 1843, uh that morning, Christmas morning, Joseph Smith is uh, awakened. And this is in, in his journal. He's awakened. Let me just read this. This morning about one o'clock, I was aroused by an English sister, Latisse Rushton Widow, uh, of Richard Rushton Sr., who 10 years ago lost her sight. So there's this blind Latter-day Saint from Britain that at 1 a.m. is outside of Joseph Smith's house accompanied by three of her sons with their wives and her two daughters with their husbands and several of her neighbors singing a mortals awake with angels join, which caused a thrill of pleasure to run through my soul. All of my family and boarders arose to hear the serenade and I felt to thank my heavenly father for their visit and bless them in the name of the Lord. They also visited my brother Hiram who was awakened from his sleep. He arose and went out of doors to them. He shook hands with them and he blessed each one of them in the name of the Lord. So it's pretty, obviously people did do Christmas caroling and Joseph Smith woke up at one in the morning, Christmas morning by these carolers singing mortals awake. Yeah, Richard's giving me the sign that if it had been 6 a.m., it would have been fine. But uh, 1 a.m.? Well, maybe Joseph was still awake. Well, no, he said he was asleep, so... Yeah, 1 a.m., that's that's a lot. Well, well, so after having gotten no sleep, I just think what a beautiful thing this this sister did. This blind sister gets her whole family together to go sing, and it's obviously so touching to Joseph and Hiram that, that Joseph's writing about it, and, and Hiram's talking about it. I mean, it's it's a what can I give the prophet of of the restoration? I can give him this this gift of this beautiful Christmas carol on Christmas Day. Well, later that night, Joseph Smith is holding a Christmas party. Like I said, it was pretty customary to try to have large uh, Christmas gatherings with your friends. Um, and so that night, 
Um, well, it's actually that afternoon. It starts, they start early, you know, they start early. <laughs> and what's funny is they're not getting drunk. So, I mean, you think you start early so you could get drunk. But um, at about two o'clock, this is also from uh, Joseph's journal, about two o'clock, about 50 couples sat down at my table to dine with me. This is Christmas of 1843. 50 couples. Okay, so there's a there's hundred people at this party. Joseph is able to throw bigger parties than I am. Um, while I was eating, my scribe called on me and then he's asked to actually go marry someone who wants to get married on Christmas. And Joseph's like, well, I've got all these people here. So he actually sends Brigham Young to go do it. So, I mean, that's where, you know, I'm, all right, Joseph. I'm sure Brigham's at the party, but anyway, so, you know, so he goes and marries him. A large party supped at my house and then they then spent the evening in music and dancing and in the most cheerful and friendly manner during those festivities. During the festivities, so this is, this is the story we wanted to tell, a man, apparently drunk, with his hair long and falling over his shoulders, came in and he acted like a Missourian. Now, I love the fact that by 1843, being a Missourian is a pejorative. It's a, a way a that, drunk, yeah, long-haired, yeah. He's just vagabond. He's just drunk. He, he seems like he's a Missourian. What's wrong with that guy? <laughs> uh, so uh, I think that's funny because also in like church movies, we haven't forgotten what Missouri's done to us because you'll notice that people who are evil <laughs> all have kind of a Missouri accent. <laughs> And, and it's even to the point where sometimes I'll even know that the incident they're talking about, like, oh, yeah, those guys are from, like, uh, California. They're like, oh, one of these Mormons coming up. And <laughs> you know, like from the movie Legacy. Now, in Legacy, they're showing actual Missourians, but has, like, some of the greatest lines of all time, right? Half a dozen of all these Mormons. <laughs> they arrived on the banks of the upper Missouri. Now they're over 2,000. They are superstitious and opposed to slavery. In no time, you have a mom and sheriff. And mama judges. And mama judges. <laughs> and then you have that guy with the squeaky voice in the back. Like, and how about Joseph Smith talking to God and his angels? You know, I, 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 it, it was very out of place. But, but, but we tend to see people with a Missouri accent collectively as, oh, yeah, that person must be bad. <laughs> I apologize to everyone listening in Missouri. Oh, they know. Uh, they're like, yeah, they're we like know. well, we earned this. Anyway, um, uh, so they, he, Joseph right, he thinks he's a Missourian, right? Okay. I commanded the captain of the police to put him out of doors. In the scuffle, I looked him for the, so, so he comes barging into the party. And they're like, hey, who is this guy? He's like, I'm here to see Joseph. I'm sure he sounds, he seems like he's drunk. His hair is all over. The guards are grabbing him, trying to haul him out. And as they're hauling him out, Joseph sees his face. And I looked him full in the face and to my great surprise and joy untold, I discovered that it was Porter Rockwell. Orrin Porter Rockwell just arrived from a year's imprisonment in, in Missouri. Porter Rockwell just so happened to make it. So what happened is that Rockwell was arrested on the charge of uh, attempting to kill Lilburn Boggs, the governor of Missouri who wrote the uh, who issued the extermination order, Lilburn Boggs was shot. He was wounded. He survived, but without any evidence at all, he immediately said, "Oh yeah, that was Porter Rockwell who did it." Well, sometime later, Rockwell was in uh, St. Louis and he's arrested on the crime. He uh, 
<laughs> so interestingly, um, he he will be arraigned. Um, eventually, he's going to be it, the charges are going to be he, he's going to be uh, found innocent. He's going to not guilty on on the charges. But he actually is going to be convicted of one thing, and that is at one point he tries to escape. And so after spending almost a month, uh, I mean almost a year in, in, in prison in Missouri for these charges, he's found guilty of attempting to escape, and the judge sentences him to five minutes in jail, essentially because of time served. Like, well, what I would put you in jail for is a, is a year, and that's... that's We've already been there for a year, so. What what was his what was his uh, uh whether we I don't know if it's true or not. What's his alleged quote about uh, Lots shooting? Lots of people are allegedly saying you know allegedly say something to the effect of, well, it couldn't have been Porter Rockwell because it was only an attempted murder. So, <laughs> that yeah, when he was shooting when, at him, he would have killed. When him. he shoots, he doesn't miss. Yeah, when when he shoots at people, uh, they. That's the end of people. At any rate, uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, I think that nothing brings in the holiday cheer quite like this. But, you you know, you see this joyous reunion uh, that Joseph has with Porter Rockwell. Um, and and Joseph actually is going to, he, he he's going to uh, at one point write a blessing out for, for Porter Rockwell. He's, he's talking about the people that he loves, people that he wants to, um, he wants God to remember in, in something called the book of the law of the Lord, where if you wrote your name in this book, then that was Joseph commending you to God, essentially. Uh, he says, there's one man that I would mention. So he says, there's too many people to mention in all of it that I want, you know, but there's one man I do want to mention. Porter Rockwell, who is now a fellow wanderer with myself. This is Joseph giving this. An exile from his home because of the murderous deeds and infernal fiendish disposition of the indefatigable and unrelenting hand of the Missourians. Again, there's a theme here. He is an innocent and a noble boy. May God Almighty deliver him from the hands of his pursuers. He was an innocent and a noble child. Joseph Joseph knew him as a, as a youth. That they, they, they knew each other before there ever was a church. That's how long they, they've known each other. Um, he's an, uh, <clears throat> he's an innocent and noble boy. May God deliver him from the hands of his pursuers. He was an innocent and noble child and my soul loves him. Let this be recorded forever and ever. Let the blessings of salvation and honor be his portion. That's, that's, I, I would just like to say, I would like to have, uh, that kind of a blessing given to me by Joseph Smith. So hopefully you have a good uh, holiday season and and hopefully you have a Merry Christmas. We have a bonus uh, episode that we're going to have come out on Christmas Day. If in fact you need something to put in your ear on your on your your headphones while you're listening to Uncle Frank recount why Black Friday shopping is immoral in the eyes of God. Um well, so so the I thought there was another story of Porter Rockwell that you were going to share. I don't think we have time. Okay, I think we're going right, to well, push it. We're well, now that it. is a tease. Yeah, that that's being pushed. We've got one more story we want to share about him. But if you hear it, you're going to have to tune in not just to the next podcast because that's the bonus one. And the bonus one, by the way, is it's a it's going to be a little bit. Uh, Garrett didn't want to do this. I don't want to do any of this. That's this is true. I literally don't want to do what we're doing right now. But uh, we we had his brother uh, in town and and his his wife also in town. I mean she she does. Yeah, she came back. <laughs> but um, 
so they share some some stories and we we talk a little bit about uh about garrett uh we, we received several uh emails and different things from from folks just wanting to know a little bit more about garrett so that that's what that bonus is and uh garrett hated 100 percent of it which made me love it you can feel free to to skip it 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 will have very little to do with uh any type of church history and it will have a lot to do with ferrets there will be ferrets in it and that's to my everlasting shame <laughs> so thank you so much for listening and we hope you have a great week Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.